that's your final chance, Claxon, to get your BossConf online fall tickets for the three-day online and immersive conference of this season, happening on 27th to 29th of September. Visit businessofsoftware.org fall to get your tickets now. The Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Hello and welcome to episode 85 of the Boss Podcast. I am Kirk Bailey and this week I am not going to bring you a talk from our archive, but a new conversation that Mark Littlewood held with Logic Analytics, Charles Caldwell, covering everything from what makes a good product person to ISVs and everything in between. Happy listening. Hi, this is Mark Littlewood. Uh, Welcome uh, to the Business Software Podcast. Uh, Delighted to be joined today by Charles Caldwell um, from Logi Analytics, uh, who do embedded analytics software for uh, SaaS applications. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about what they do later on. Uh, Charles is the VP of Product, uh, and uh, we're going to be asking him um, first of all, obviously, uh, what embedded analytics are, but uh, then really dig into uh, some of the do's and the don'ts and the uh, interesting things about them. So, um, hi, Charles. Very uh, welcome. Mark, good to be with you today. Great to uh, great to see you. And uh, you're over in Virginia, which uh, is really a nice place to be at this time of year as the leaves turn brown and fall off the trees, I hear. It is it is a perfect time to be in Virginia. We're out of the, the heat of the summer into the cool fall, and uh, we'll, we will start to get many visitors to Skyline Drive up in the mountains to see all the leaves turning. Wow. Um, and is there a window of just perfect weather, and then uh, it turns very cold? And Yeah, I mean, we, we do tend to have... Uh, somewhat robust winters here, although they're not too bad. You get up a little bit farther north. Uh, my friends up in Boston, those are real winters uh, up there. Yeah. So. yeah, they have the worst. But I mean, I, I, I remember arriving in Boston once in June and by the time I came from New York and by the time I'd stepped off the train, I just had to head straight to a shop to buy shorts and flip-flops and uh, oh wow it's uh yeah it flips backwards and forwards but uh long live long live temperate environments tell uh, tell me a little bit about you and your background so your vp of product what does that uh, what does that mean what do you do yeah well i mean like most vps of product i think that that is the question what do we do but uh, let me talk about my background <laughs> a little bit and then we'll we'll get into what i do today I've been, I've been, uh, I started my career really as a practitioner in the business intelligence and analytics space. Um, and, I, you know, I had the journey that I think many people in that, in that uh, industry have had around building data warehouses to support uh, decision makers and, and BI systems. And that was primarily executives uh, and sort of middle management. Um, we were always trying to push those more to frontline workers, but those systems always had something like a 30% adoption rate as a high watermark. Uh, we always kind of struggled to get really those tools out into the hands of everybody. So I, I'm, I am one of these idealistic people who believe if we get the right information in front of people at the right time, we can help make better decisions. We can help people make better, more effective decisions. And I got sort of interested in moving out of the practitioner phase into going to a vendor. Um, I think I wanted to have an influence in making the dog food rather than just eating the dog food (laughs) as a a practitioner and influence it that way. Um, When I joined Logi in 2009, I started uh, in leading our technical field. I was uh, in pre-sales and and did support and and, uh, our technical account management and professional services. And it really just gave me a great perspective on working with SaaS application teams and their needs, um, and really how to use analytics to impact the value of, a, of an application. And it's about, I guess, four years ago now, three and a half years ago, I moved over uh, to lead our product team. And I think like most product managers, you know, 98% of my time is spent influencing other people to try to um, 
understand the problem set, uh, believe it's an interesting problem set that can be solved, build a solution that solves it, find out how good we did, get the feedback back, right? So very much focused on engaging with the market to, to understand what makes a valuable, usable solution to a, to a high quality product and then helping the team uh, focus in on that and deliver on it. And while we're, while we're talking about you, um, uh, product management, what was, the, what was the thing that drew you in? Why did you, uh, why, did you uh, why is that where you've ended up? What's the, what's the great Yeah, I, so there's, on, on, the, on the opportunistic side, I think what drew me in opportunistically was, is, is what's kind of drawn me into to everything in my career, which is there, there was a problem to be, solved and I was complaining about it enough that somebody finally put me in charge of solving it, right? So that happens quite quite a lot to, to many people. Um, I think more idealistically, I, I've always been um, very interested in helping people uh, find solutions to problems that matter. I mean, I, from, from a very young age, um, I remember Somebody saying to my mom once when I was 12 or 13, you know, that that boy is a problem solver. Um, and I really do just enjoy engaging with uh, almost anybody who's sort of sat there staring at an issue that is interesting, complicated, clearly valuable to them. And, and I can see some value in, in solving it and then engaging with them to figure out what the solution is. And, and that balance between, you know, what the theoretical perfect solution is versus what can this human being actually do and use and implement um, is really just fascinating. And that every problem, I think, gets even more interesting to solve when you sort of take into account that real human beings will have to be able to understand it, accept it, do it to, mm. to make the thing work um and i that in the end i love technology but the end in the end i'm a humanist and i really do um sort of center myself around how are we creating value for human beings and helping them solve uh problems that have value to them yeah so i'm sure this has never happened at Logi analytics right but, um when you wake up in the morning as a product person and you're like, I, no, I don't want to get out of bed. This is, uh, life sucks. What's the thing that, what's the thing that drives that as a product person? What's that really tough thing that's the bit that uh, grinds you down? Um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's <clears throat> fascinating. I don't know, I don't know who came up with the product management position, but it's the closest fit to the definition of scapegoat I think I've ever seen. We've got responsibility for everything and authority over nothing. And um, and and I don't that sounds that sounds really negative. I don't mean it as, as a negative. I enjoy the job, but that is the I think that is the key challenge. The key challenge is, and I, it was funny. I had a, a a new engineer lead on the team actually asked me this question two days ago. He's like, "Hey, what's the most challenging thing in your job?" And I'm like, I need you to deliver my product and I didn't hire you. I can't fire you. All I can do is su suggest, cajole, send you gifts, like the influence, inspire maybe. Maybe I can inspire you, but this is, this is the way we work. And in some ways it's interesting. It's very liberating in some ways. And the, the need to really focus in on a problem set and balance the solution across, is it economically viable? Is it technically feasible? Is it usable? Is it inspirational? Is it new? Is it defensible? Are we driving innovation? That's a lot to balance. And as, as soon as you have ownership on the sales number or marketing leads or sprint velocities, it's hard not to get out of balance and sucked into those things. So in some ways it's liberating. In some ways it does help you balance short-term versus long-term customer value versus investor value. Um, in, in other ways, it's infuriating because you, you are somewhat, it, it, it's like being a, a sailor uh, at sea in, in a storm some days where um, you're just at the mercy of the, the teams, the dynamics of the wind and the waves and the, and the ocean, and you ride it out. Yeah. Um, and that is, I think, 
that is a thing that um, I know I underestimated, and I think a lot of product people underestimate the amount of um, influencing that they mm. will need to be able to do to be successful. Um, and, you know, everybody doesn't like your idea for a different reason. <laughs> that's probably, if it, was, if it was the same reason, that's totally easy to solve. But it, it's the fact that everybody doesn't like it for a different reason that's so challenging. So. Fantastic. Yeah, it, so Marty Kagan has this, uh, or had this sort of, obviously deliberately controversial thing you know the product manager is the ceo and uh, people always take these things in completely uh, the wrong way but uh, i think that they are um with one massive difference they are in so much as they have to understand how all the different bits of the business work and how the business fits together they aren't because they literally have no power um and uh one of the reasons I think quite often that uh, product people uh, move into C role, CEO roles and uh, can be very successful because they, um, they have sort of spent quite a lot of time doing the influencing and thinking about the psychology and uh, the, 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 the kind of core value and all these things without uh, being able to actually do something. But uh, what, who, who, where do the best product people come from in your your view um, oh man yeah that's reports. yeah i mean i think i think there's actually a lot of great combinations that that can result in a in a great product person one, one of the signals that i look for is like i love to see people who well i i'm i'm not super huge purely on credentials and this will make it sound like I am but if I'm looking at your resume and you've got a, an engineering comp side background plus an MBA I'm interested in talking to you as a product person um, and that's 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 really just a signal the the signals that I'm looking for well so there's some non-negotiables mark that the, the non-negotiables are you got to be curious you absolutely have to have a, a demonstrated curiosity um you've got to be smart i don't know if it's politically correct to say it but you have to just have raw intelligence and not it's not just pure iq there's a lot of eq that goes into that and the ability to have empathy um, but if i can't sort of see well-rounded raw intelligence <laughs> eq and iq plus plus curiosity um that's that's usually a, a bad signal for me um strong ability to communicate is important uh, in there as well. But I think the, the reason I like to see the, that mix of technical and business in some way is it's a demonstration that it, the individual is able to understand real world problems and apply technology to those real world problems. And that's that's why I think so many practitioners make great product managers, people who have come out of doing the job because they bring empathy with them and they understand the problems. Although I've seen many technical people who started off with the bits and the bites and didn't necessarily do the job, but they've got the, they've, they've got the empathy and the curiosity to really want to go there. I, I use, I use gorillas in the mist as a phrase quite a, quite a lot. Like you have to be willing to go observe the business people and understand how do they how do they talk or whoever your end users are? What is their world really like? Um, what is the real shape of their of their problems? Um, so I, it really for me it does come down to sort of curiosity, empathy, and then um, you know there's there's some some other attendant skill sets in there you can generally teach or develop in folks, but those tend to be core for me. Interesting, interesting. So slightly, I mean, not necessarily what we're, uh, we were planning on talking about, but it's always, I mean, I think you know, building products and building companies and companies you can think of as a, as a product as well, uh, is a, a very core thing for uh, what, uh, what we're doing. And it's, it's fascinating to get people's uh, takes. Um, business intelligence. So BI was, um, 
I remember companies, BI companies being sold 10 years ago or more for a billion dollars when that was actually a lot of money and yeah. something that, uh, well, there you go, wow. Um, it's, a, it's a thing that's been around for a very long time. Um, it, it's kind of gone through a you know, hugely fashionable with the big enterprise thing, struggle to, uh, to, to sometimes kind of deliver on some of the challenges that uh, big enterprises uh, have um, and has evolved into something a, a little bit different. Um, what happened, you know, in your view, when, when BI hit the, hit the road and it started to kind of get traction, what were the kind of challenges to uh, you know, making it work and really kind of getting it to, uh, to be a... A, a, a really important thing in in an organization yeah well so i think there's man there's a there, there's a lot there um there are technical challenges there there are um sort of cultural challenges that that bi has faced along the way and i think the the sort of the, the quick summary well and there's also there's also sort of design and, and architecture challenges that the the, the, the practice is faced along the way. Um, you know, I think at, at a high level, the, the, the early days of, of business intelligence um, struggled from a technology perspective. I think that the main challenge has always been, has always been that um, our maturity around uh, storing and, and maintaining data and data quality um, isn't generally up to the task um, in broadly. And, and there's some organizations that, that do much better at this, but it is a hard business of collecting data, um, understanding how good the quality is of that data, and then shaping that data for multiple purposes. And you know, it's, it's a really, we think everything's digital, but the reality is it's stored physically somewhere somehow, and electrons do take time to move. So it's the same problem as optimizing, you know, books in a in a library. If you store information to be optimized for a certain set of things, like transactional processing, um, that information is not optimized for a certain other set of things, like summary level analytic processing, and that's. The challenges around data storage, data access, data performance are, are still with us today. And as we solve them, we, we just, you know, increase the order of magnitude of the data that we're dealing with. So the problems all sort of come back. We're, we're, we're not sort of outrunning. I forget whose law this is, but the, you know, software gets worse faster than computers get better. Um, that's, that's not been true, but, but whoever's, whoever's the, the corollary to Moore's law there. So data is kind of similar, like data gets bigger, faster than, than our databases get faster or our, our storage architectures get better. So there's always been the, 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 the tech challenges and, and they're, they're generally, it's not the only challenge we need to solve, but that's generally been the challenges, making sure the data is good quality, highly performant, those types of things. Um, the cultural challenges, I think we're, we're moving through and, and the cultural challenges have generally been, you know, I'm a human being, I, I business is, is much more than metric. So I, I'm going to run, run my business the way I want to run it. Um, I think we're largely over that. And in fact, the pendulum may have swung a little bit too far the other way. I think we may have swung too far into if, if we can't measure it, 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 it doesn't exist in, in some in some cultures. So I, I think we're probably past that. The, the, the next challenge has been numeracy. And anybody who's reacting to that word, like what is that word? I mean, that's the point. If, if, if you've never even heard of the concept of numeracy, it's a demonstration mm -hmm. that this is a cultural problem that we have. Um, and, and, you know, there's some basic statistical concepts um, that we, we, that trick us. Um, any delays and feedback systems trick us as human beings. Like there are a lot of things that we're not good at in our cognition that we know we're not good at. And, and analytics and these types of systems can help us. This is what technology is meant to be, it's meant to help us extend past our natural capabilities. And, that is still a challenge today. And, and 
I'll pick on myself. I, I, I still see myself exhibit plenty of biases in my own decision-making and I have to work on a bad day. I've got to really sort of remind myself like, wait, wait, wait. like I could know that. I can go get that information. Mm -hmm. That information doesn't mean what I think it means. So that's definitely an area. And then you get into a group of people and you, you can lose the grip on how do we really interpret these metrics? What are these telling us? What are they not telling us? Um, and confirmation bias is my favorite. Like if peop, most people don't understand falsification or what it is or how to use it, and therefore they're just walking through life with confirmation bias, trying to use data to prove their pre-existing ideas. And that's super dangerous. So numeracy is a, is, a, is a big issue, I think, that we still face um, around uh, BI and analytics. And then I, the, 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 the final one that I'll talk about uh, just briefly is um, just kind of the conceptual architecture. And in this one, I think we've moved past, but the, the initial conceptual architecture it was very reflective out of the management culture it was coming out of in, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, which was if we can get all of the data unified in one place to the executive, the executive will make an amazing decision and everyone will follow that decision and we'll reach nirvana. Um, and it's interesting, mean, meanwhile, this, this, you know, guy off at, off at this weird uh, physics lab decided to build an information system that didn't bring all the information together, just sort of loosely linked it, made it appear like it was somehow related with no standards, no, well, that's with standards, but no integration, no unification, and we call that the internet, right? And it was the most successful information system we've ever built. And we've learned from that, and we've learned from, from concepts like um, Agile and other more distributed concepts, we've started to learn there's very often, very often there's, there's no value or little value in knowing everything all at once. And there's a lot of value in knowing something that's much more targeted now. And, and as long as the person to whom it matters, the person who can take action on it knows it. And we're, if you look at the history of data warehousing, it has been a story of how do I solve for life, universe, everything? How do we build deep thought and solve all problems? Two, how do I solve problems in departments for people around high value issues and, and iterate and deliver value? So th those, if it, at a high level, that's my Sparks Notes version of the BI industry over the last 30 years or so, really, and, and most people would sort of recognize it as a 20-year journey, but it, it really started in the 70s at, at Procter & Gamble. So this, is, this has been going on for quite some time at this point. Yeah, yeah it's very, uh, very interesting. And we've kind of got to a point now where I mean, people talk about the democratization of data and data literate companies and I suppose all organizations are becoming a little bit uh, more uh, that that inclined as we uh, as we uh, progress. It's, as you say, increasingly easy to create data and produce it. Uh, I think those cultural things about not necessarily understanding what the data means. I mean, the more data you have, and I've so kind of always use marketing as the example for this, because unless you have a very, very clear of what your goal is, you can go off and do a campaign or something. And it's how does it go? You know, did we sell anything? No, but we had 500 retweets of the. There's always a metric. You know, there's always some data that you can use to, to show that you're doing something um, uh, useful. So we've, we've kind of got to this stage where organizations are using applications. They're much um, they're less loosely connected um, mm -hmm. than they were. And so uh, data, business intelligence uh, and, the, and the data around it is uh, it's much more available. But from what you're saying, that's not necessarily a good thing. 
Yeah, it, and, and it's interesting. I don't, it, 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 it's neither good nor bad. I think it's got, um, it's got some benefits and it's got some challenges um, for, for, for sure. And I think the, you know, so con context matters a, a ton. So, so when data exists outside of context, it is hard to know what to do with it exactly. Um, and and your, your, your example there is actually a great example. Um, leading indicators are valid for sure. We need leading indicators. So the fact that we got a bunch of retweets on a marketing campaign is it could be the best data that I could have. And, and in fact, if what I'm doing is testing a market for interest on an idea that I haven't built yet, that's amazing data because I've, I've saved it, the, the money a ton of, or I've saved the organization a ton of money by not building a product nobody wants, right? Committing, committing the sin of code is very expensive. So, so that can be amazing data, but for it to be amazing data, I have to have a hypothesis that I'm trying to prove. I have to have an experiment that I'm trying to run. I have to have context about why that leading indicator matters to an outcome that I care about and what that outcome is. And that outcome could be to sell something or the outcome could be to decide what to build next. And this, when I, when I talk about numeracy, it isn't just math. It's, it is this sort of thinking around what questions am I trying to answer? How can I know that? More importantly, how can I know that it's not true? How can I disprove it? And how am I sort of instrumenting my data collection and my data analysis to, to learn? And there's, I mean, there's, there's basically two types of problems. There are tame problems, which are just, they're problems we know how to solve. You just follow a pattern to solve them. Um, like building a bridge, it, it may not be simple, but it's a solvable problem. We know how to do it and engineers go off and do that. And there are wicked problems and those problems, we do not know how to solve them. And it, when you're in that mode, you need to be in a learning mode. And a learning mode is very different than kind of an engineering execution mode. And that's a, I, I, I still see a lot of people bringing data and saying that it, it prove some point and but they're sort of a theoretical or they're not in a learning mode they don't know why they collected the data in the first place and if it's if it's really sort of suggesting um, what it says to them and I I think that there are lots of ways to fix this one, one of the ways that I sort of have have chosen at least in this phase of my career and this was my transition out of out of sort of pure business intelligence was to really focus in on applications. And, and the, the reason I like, so the, the, the thesis sort of went, hey, if I'm giving people dashboards, reports, pivot tables, predictive analytics for generalized solve, problem solving, and only 15 to 20% of the audience who should be using this are using this, what's up with that? And, and what was up with that that I could see was context. I was saying, here's data, you figure out what your problems are and this data will answer it for you. Um, and that works for some group of people, uh, especially for analysts who they have, no, they have no lack of problems showing up on their doorsteps because people walk by their door every day and they're like, what's up with this? What's up with that, right? Um, but for many people, that's not really kind of how our life works. And, and, and meanwhile, there, there was this army of people enabled by you know, the internet and, and mobile computing, building applications that were purpose built to solve specific problems. And it's interesting, it, in, those problems are increasingly specific. So you, you deal with Salesforce that's solving kind of a, a big problem. Um, and that's, that's cool. You know, you've got sort of end-to-end -end customer relationship management, but increasingly you see these applications that are targeted. Well, so like we're, you know, we're using Otter AI. Like what problem does that solve? Well, it's going to create the transcript for this thing. That's what it does. It's amazing, but oh. it's very focused. It's very focused. What's happening there with applications is I've contextualized everything out of the gate. 
I know who you are. I know what problem you're trying to solve. I know what information matters to you. I, I even, if the application's good, it will actually represent the shape of your decision process to some degree. I mean, the reason everybody buys everything off Amazon is not because it's an online bookstore. It's because they figured out the shape of your decision process. I'm looking at a product. Is it any good? What do the reviews look like? What are the alternates? What are the price? Who's the best seller? They figured out the shape of the decision process. And that's why I go there. That's why I will stand in Marks and Spencer if I'm in the UK or I'll, you know, I'll stand in a, a, a Target or a Walmart here looking at a product and buy a different product off Amazon is because I went to Amazon for the information and the decision process. So this idea got really interesting to me because I, I was saying to myself, man, look, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help people make decisions and make decisions better. And we're struggling to get people into pivot tables and, and dashboards and these BI tools. But I've seen everybody in my life, including you know, my parents, my nieces and nephews, little kids, old, older people, all my peers, use apps. <laughs> they use applications for everything in their life in, increasingly. And they all want are trying to make a decision. There's usually a point in those applications where having information will help them take a better action, make a better decision, get more value out of the application. And, and that's why, you know, back, back in 2009, I sort of came across Logi Analytics and, and found this cool company that was in the BI analytics space, but focused in on working with application teams and helping them get these types of capabilities embedded in their, in their applications and not just sort of like, hey, let's bolt in dashboards to your app. That's not, that, I mean, that's okay. That, that can help depending on the use case. But the, the really interesting stuff is when you've got a customer standing in a competitor looking at a product and they come to your app because you're giving them the insights they need to feel confident in their decision. Mm. Like that's a cool example yeah. of, of embedding analytics in, a, in an app in a way that matters. So. Right, that's a, a really good point, I think, just to put a little bit of context around Logi Analytics and, and, and where it's come from, because uh, you joined in 2009, it had been going for a while. What, uh, how did it start out and uh, how has it evolved? Yeah, well, and if, if, if I go way back, Logi was founded really as an application development platform for the web. And, and early in its founding, it, the, the, the founding team sort of figured out there was this interesting problem to solve inside web application development around analytic displays. So it, it, it moved from let's build all of web-based applications to let's get really focused in on the analytic capabilities that are part of web applications. And, and by the time I joined in 2009, the fastest growing and most profitable part of our business really was working with ISVs. And what was attractive to me was, um, I, and you know, hope I don't offend anybody, but ISVs are way out there on the edge of tech, on solving hard problems, on adopting, um, best-in-class process, it was a cool group of people to be working with. So I, I absolutely love working with customers who are software vendors building SaaS applications because uh, they were doing interesting stuff from a problem-solving perspective. And, and I get to see all kinds of cool problems, like how, how do we solve um, the, the problems of medical safety once a medicine's released and is actually in the population, but we're monitoring it for long-term safety to um, how do I help used car dealerships uh, sell used cars more efficiently to uh, you name everything in between those things, you name it, solving cool problems, but also <laughs> with some really interesting tech problems, right? So we're on-prem and cloud because of, of you know, regulations around privacy in Europe. We're multi-tenanted, we're at high scale, we've got massive concurrency because we're SaaS. Um, we've got 
multiple uh, data technologies to solve different problems. So we're using search plus analytic plus high transactional and raft databases and, and all this stuff. So it's just a cool group of people to work with. You, you can tell. So yeah. how did I get excited yeah. by, by working with these folks? So, so growing fast, it was, and that also helps us because it, it challenges us to solve harder problems. And, and those are, those become problems of how do you embed? How do you deploy? How do you create composable feature sets that enable a, a product manager to build a unique experience, not just sort of bolt in or redistribute your own software? Because in the end, part of the value proposition I'm creating for my customers is they can create a unique value proposition using my capabilities. It's not just, hey, they've bolted in Logi. I can see they bolted in Logi. This is another Logi implementation. It, it's much it's much more fine-grained uh, than that. Oh. So your business model, uh, you're selling what to who, so they make money by what? Yeah. I, oh, I so, think Alex, Alex Osterwalder would give me a slap for um, <laughs> that. Uh, who are you who are you selling to? What are you solving for? Yeah, I mean um, the, the the main the the main way that I think about it is that I'm what I'm selling is a a very complex, repeatable set of features that just about every application will need at some point in their life cycle, so that a product manager can can get it onto the roadmap and out to market as fast as possible. Um, it is, I, I've, I sometimes refer to it as roadmap in a box. So it's not your entire roadmap, but it is your analytics roadmap in a box. Um, and, and, and with the ability to sort of pick and choose which capabilities and, and shape the experience to your own needs and get your dev team back to work on the stuff that really matters for your unique value proposition. And a lot of these use cases um, that we deal with, they are highly repeatable. So the way the threshold-based data alert works, there's no reason to reinvent that over and over. The way mm. drill down and, and it, doing cohort analysis through key sets, and like there's, there's just a ton of functionality that there's no reason for application teams to reinvent or reimagine how these things work. And, and the UX inside of those, what works for a human being in working with data through those types of capabilities, I would argue is highly repeatable as well. Um, the, the trick is you need, it, well, the trick is they're super complicated. So unlike a, a repeatable pattern like lost password, I'm sure a lot of people implement their own lost password uh, implementation. Hopefully they're not reinventing mm. the UX pattern for that because I think we got that one nailed. Yeah. Um, but that one's simple. That's a relatively simple technical implementation. The, the, the problem with analytics is it's a multi-tier problem in which a click on the screen manifests itself all the way back in capabilities in the database. And then there's a lot in between that stack. So it's, it's, it's UX client stack, it's app tier stack, it's data stack. And you've got to have the right platform that fits into your architecture, but covers capabilities across those things. So it's, it's really that combination. So it, mostly it's product managers coming to me saying, my customers are, are yelling at me. I got, I got a ton of requests. People know we've got all this data and they're not getting insights out of it. They're not getting value out of it. We want to create more value. But when I go to my dev team, they say, this is a roadmap by itself. Like you can, so we can yeah. either do the product roadmap or we can do the analytics for the product roadmap. So we need help. And, and a lot of teams will try to get there by using some components to try to get themselves down the road. And it's actually not a bad place to start in the world where 500 tweets is about figuring out if you should go into a market at all. So yeah. if you're early phase and you're trying to test, and prototype and get feedback. Yeah, I mean, I would go grab uh, high charts or an AG grid. I would, I would grab some components, run some tests and see. But in, in the world in which you're starting to get into high scale and you've introduced something early and now you're getting the long list of death by thousand cuts, detailed features of drill down and filtering and shared filtering and scheduling and all of these things. Um, 
you're not going to, maybe you'll get there, but you're going to need a big team to get there. That That's yeah. the, the point at which I am generally encouraging people. You need to go partner with somebody because you're, you're going to swamp the dev team. So it really is that combination yeah. of I need complex features. I don't have an infinite dev team. I've, I've never met a product manager that complains about having too much velocity in their in their development team. I haven't met that person yet. If you are that person, call me. I want to talk to yeah. you. But so if there's somebody out there, I, I want to talk to, to that person. Um, so that's generally the, yeah. the core of the value proposition. And it, it, as I think about our long term, the things I get interested in is, is where are, do we have more opportunity to take feature sets that are like that, that are very complex to implement, but are largely every application is going to need them or, or most applications are going to need them. And how do we continue to expand uh, our set of composable features to encompass those? So product managers have at least one partner in the market where they can go and say, oh, I can go take this, drop it into my product in a way that the dev team's going to like it it works architecturally mm. it works from how we how we do CICD um, and get that out to market as, as quickly as possible and, and one of the one of the things I recognize is um, I mean this is probably the one of the hardest things we do as product managers is trying to get the this balance right between what would be valuable in the market and and what we can actually deliver what our dev teams can can actually deliver so anything I can ever get for free or cheap or quick, even if it's not cheap, if it's quick, sometimes there's a ton of value in being able to get something out quick so we can learn and then iterate and, and continue to deliver value. Interesting. So we, we have this, uh, I, I have a, there are a couple of phrases that people aren't allowed to use at our conference. One is the, um, you know the Henry Ford quote about faster horses because it's just so old and, um, and and hackneyed. And then the other one is like the data is the new oil thing because it's just like oh come on, um, these are just like meaningless things that go up on big screens in big corporate yeah. events where everyone's hung over. Um, I don't mean anything. Um, people are kind of drowning in data. I think there's this this thing when. Uh, your applications can produce lots of data that you make it available. Um, and that's not always the case, because as we've said, I, I love the way that you put that, that uh, the data increases at a faster rate than uh, you know, um, you know, computers get crappier at uh, uh, using it. When people, when people start building their applications, they might kind of think about making um, some of that data or all of that data available. How often when you start working, talking to people, um, uh, and you know, you're the kind of doctor here, you know, the answer is not, uh, actually, yeah, you need 40 times more data. It's you need 5% of this in this. Yeah. Way. So how do, you, how do you approach those uh, conversations? How do you persuade people that less is more? Um, and well, there's a, there's a start. Yeah, so so it's interesting. I may, maybe you've already detected this. But I, I definitely have a strong bias here. So, I mean, you you can do field of dreams, and there there's value in sort of building some stuff and throwing it out there to to, to get some feedback. But I would argue that there's very little value in doing that. So so if you can do that quickly and cheaply, and and certainly we we've got a lot of customers because they're using a platform to get there fast, where you. It is easy to get some dashboards out there, get some reactions to them, get get some reports out there, mm. get some reactions to them. That, that that's okay. Um, if you're in learning testing mode, that's okay. Um, the the my bias though is definitely um, you don't want to be opening up all the data. And it, I mean the, the the story of my career is is as a naive young man coming into an industry that believed if if I can you know gather the the every every uh, point and vector on every uh, atom in the universe we can predict the entire future and, and was busily trying to do that and, and it didn't work they never got there so all of the data exposed to you know people 
is isn't necessarily functional. And this is one where the way I tend to convince people is I work with product managers, and it tends to be relatively easy to say to a product manager, um, "What's your theory about?" how you could create value for a customer with features like this, right? And I don't, so, so if as a product manager, you're trapped in a feature factory, so one, I might have to engage with you on the feature factory conversation, like, okay, you're just pumping features into your product, cool. I can give you some features to pump into your product, but that's never high value for anybody. And, and in fact, it's a great way to destroy a, a perfectly good application. Mm blindly pumping features in. Uh, so if we can get out of that, if we can get, get past the feature factory conversation, it really is about who's the persona, what is, what is their goal, what is the task they're trying to accomplish. And, and then the question that I ask around data is really typically this one basic question. If that individual could know something in that moment, that would allow them to take a different action, what is that that they could know? And the reason I asked the question that way is one, it's focused on the information. So that's kind of the domain we're dealing with, like what's the data we could give them. And it also helps you start to understand what the data needs to look like, how it needs to, to be presented. But the, the real thing there is if you don't have at least the potential to change your behavior, the data is what I would call non-diagnostic in my fancy terms. It just means it don't, it don't matter, as they say here in Virginia. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> the data don't matter. If you tell me something and I never change my behavior over, over seeing it repeatedly, it, it's non-diagnostic to whatever problem I'm solving. It's, it's like telling me what the phase of the moon is before I buy a book, like, a, okay. I don't, that, that's totally data and you could represent it in an amazing way. It's not gonna impact, I don't think, whether I buy the book or not, um, unless it's a book about the phase of the moon and then I don't need it anymore because you just told yeah. me, so maybe that's the one way. <laughs> but, but you see what I just did, I just embodied like, and, and with product people, it's super easy to do this. You, but that's, you just have to encourage them. And I think a lot of people, we, we all get stunned a little bit when we're, engaging something new, right? It's new, it's coming, mm. it's a lot of information and, and we can get stunned out of what we know how to do. And for, for me, it's generally about saying, hey, it's totally cool. <laughs> like, don't, 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 don't freak out. Yeah, there's a ton here, predictive, prescriptive, like we can get into all the complexity. Let's go back to our fundamentals as product people. What problem are we solving? Who is it for? And what, what are the needs of that of those of that persona of those people to accomplish the goal in the context of trying to accomplish it and where information can help them that's where we start to look to analytics mm -hmm. and, and then we can get into the complexities of is it a simple descriptive is it exploratory is it predictive is it a recommendation is it collaboration we we deal with that as a secondary concern the same way we should deal with all features is a secondary concern, right? To what problem we're solving. So that's that's generally the, the how that conversation goes and it works. Um, but there, 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 there always is sort of the starry-eyed, and I relate to it a lot because I'm, you know, this is this is this is where I come from, this starry-eyed sort of idea of like, man, if we can get all of the data out there, much of the data out there, it'll, it'll unleash a ton of value. And, and it really, the, the curation of the data around problems that matter to your end users tends to unleash much more value. And by the way, it gives you very targeted ways to learn about what their needs really are, how to evolve the analytics, how to improve them, all of those things, which is all fundamental product management, UX, user-centric design. So don't just yeah. don't forget your fundamentals when you wade into analytics and you'll be good to go. <laughs> so it's interesting. One of the uh, conversations, one of the breakout conversations, discussions we're having at, uh, at the conference in a, a couple of weeks is around, uh, and, uh, is around understanding what your customers and, and how you go about understanding what your customers need uh, 
um, from data. And, and there are two bits of that. There's, there's a, a piece which is kind of understanding the technology and the, uh, and the data that's available. But I, I think what's more, it's kind of more interesting because it's harder is understanding these cultural pieces and the, and the people pieces. Look, software, hardware, really easy just works, does what it says, wetware comes along, messes it all up. Um, so are there, and I think, you know, one of the, one of the uh, things that we're looking at in the, in the breakout is, is to try and help people understand where their customers are on this kind of continuum of data literacy and yeah. you know, companies think about how they use data and, uh, of course, everyone thinks they use it brilliantly. Uh, that's not always the case. How do you kind of diagnose where your um, uh, where your customers are, and 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 have you kind of got a business case? I mean, this is a slight aside. Do you have a business case um, for? It's kind of obvious in a in a way. If you if you can help your customers become more data literate. It's two ways of doing this stuff. Yeah. There's like, okay, there are your customers. That's what they are. We're stuffed because they don't know anything and we're never going to change that. So we might as well. That's that's one approach. But as, as you say, ISVs are far more, um, they're better than that. And I think, you know, they, of course, they want to kind of get in. They want to solve problems. They want to solve um, the specific challenges, but they also will recognize that, more data literate companies uh, are going to be better long-term prospects. Would that be fair? Yeah, I, I, uh, it, it is. And I think the, I mean, the fact that we're, that, that, that we're working with ISVs in the context of, of building products, one of the, I mean, one of the big opportunities that you have in a product is just to hack people's data literacy. And, and in fact, applications are ways of hacking human beings. That's all they are. And, and uh, you know, if, if, you ha if you haven't realized it yet, that's what we're doing. We're, we're hacking ourselves and, and, and we should be. You know, Henry Ford with his faster horses, that was about hacking how fast we can move. The, the interesting thing with applications is we're not, we're to a place where we're hacking our cognition and we're trying to overcome the limits of our, of our own cognition. So. I think data literacy is a, is a very real challenge. I think the, the, one of the reasons I love applications is because it gives me an opportunity to not have to solve the problem in the person. It gives me an opportunity to meet the person where they're at and solve the problem in an application that augments the person. And this is, this is hard, this is a little bit of hard business, but it's interesting. It, I, I know we're all get confounded by the wetware to some degree, but we're, we're actually in a better state on understanding how human cognition works than we've ever been. And I think the, for, for anybody who's gonna play this game, getting, getting tapped into, um, oh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman mm. would be a good first read, although you know, Kahneman and his partner Tversky and Simon and Robin Dawes. There's just a ton of great, you know, literature out there to understand we humans make consistent mistakes in how we interpret information, how we make decisions. And applications do have the ability to help short circuit or, or, or hack those things. Um, the, the, the business case around it, I think is, is and it's actually interesting. I think the business case is either clear to people or people have just simply adopted the belief that they should be more data oriented because they see it working mm. for others. So I don't know if it's really clear to people or if they've just sort of thrown up their hands and said, okay, like we, we see high performers out there who seem yeah. to be more, more oriented towards data uh, and data consumption. Um, I mean, I think in, in terms of a business case, they, a business case is often thought of, in, thought of in terms of a, well, this is what we're going to do, this is the return we'll get, and this is the cost. And there's always a cost. And yeah. that sense that you're actually going to have to educate people suggests that you're going to have to put 
people into things and start doing things and spending money. And now I'm wondering actually whether there, you know, there's a slightly kind of more subtle approach to that, which is not about sort of necessarily having a very um, developed traditional education program. It's actually about making your products and your applications simpler and easier to use for some people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I said it earlier, I am a humanist, so I'm, I'm going to say it's, it's both. And I, I, I do think, you know, every member of your audience should be um, very interested in what we're doing to educate uh, the next generation and the current set of workers. And I think that's a, that is a significant systemic global issue everybody needs to care about. So I don't want anybody to hear me saying at all that we, we should not be uh, educating ourselves and others on, on numeracy and many other. There, there are many other Im important issues that we need a uh, educated workforce and citizenry um, to, to be able to engage with. But that said, we no matter how educated we are, we will all have limitations at some point. And, and there are bugs in our software, uh, for sure. Very, very well documented, very predictable, weird things that we do that don't result in the best decisions. And, and this is what our technology is meant to do for us, all technology. Mm. So, so my, 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 my Jeep that's sitting in my driveway is meant to enable me to do things I can't do without technology. And, and applications are about doing that for our decision making well, and, i mean talking of data it, it was in your driveway but i knew uh when we were having this conversation and that, that you'd be distracted and i know where you are and when you go outside afterwards <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh yeah there's a, a data 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 analytics in action somehow <laughs> oh, it's interesting so uh, so one thing i always like to talk to people about and uh, I know we're kind of starting to uh, run run a little short of time and these things always um, you, know, you kind of get into these things when you're working with an organization hmm. uh, and what are the things that when an organization wants to work with you and you're just like no way I because your experience of you know what are those things that mean this is going to be a pointless waste of time and no matter what short-term impact on the business it has you know everybody gets a bonus for christmas or whatever you know it's going to be a disaster uh, what are the what are the kind of flags the telltale signs for yeah i mean outside the normal stuff that everybody's going to recognize with with in in this game of data analytics it there there are two main ones that come up most often one of them is the data is just not ready and, and sometimes that means doesn't exist so that's my favorite version of the data is not ready is that it's the data just doesn't exist you have absolutely no problem with uh, data pollution at that point i mean uh, you know you've got to look on the bright side here. yeah that's right you're, you're, you've got the highest quality data you will yeah, ever it's have just the purest, you have no purest data nothing ever yeah. yeah that's that's amazing i'm going to use that one mark in my next engagement please the, the uh, so that that's one is the data's not ready and and there can be a variety of sort of root causes for that. And, and, and the second topic is one of the root causes for that, but, but can also be different in nature. And that is when, when the company does not have, or the organization does not have a good hypothesis on how they're going to create value for the end user with analytics. They're, they're, hmm. They are in fields of dreams mode. They are saying, and, and again, they're versions that are appropriate. They're totally versions where people will come and say, hey, we're trying to experiment. We, 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 we want to run some <laughs> early access programs. We've got these kinds of prototyping we want to do. We're going to get feedback. But <clears throat> you, you definitely will get, and it actually doesn't happen as much as it used to, which is, which is awesome. But you will get organizations who are basically coming to you saying, hey, we're going to crank out um, 
two or three dashboards. We don't have a lot of um, conviction that they'll actually matter to people. And then we're done. We're gonna we're gonna button that thing up, check the box, and move on. Mm. And maybe there are times to check the box in product management. I'm a I'm a pragmatist. And and as long as they're being pragmatic about that's what's gonna happen, and it's the the ROI is packaged up and making sense. Cool. That's that's fine. We we can do that. But the the warning flag there is the the expectations often are way out of whack with what they're like, we're going to save the world by building something we have no reason to believe anybody cares about. And that's generally where, again, we, we, we get into a consultative mode to say, hey, that's amazing. Have you thought about, <laughs> have you thought about how your end users, and, and very often we will sort of counsel to a, how do we prototype? How do we experiment? What can we get out? How do we measure it? And then how do we iterate on it? And Again, I think the, there's been enough growing maturity around analytics itself and growing maturity around the, the, the practice of product management over the years I've been at Logi. Thankfully, we're seeing that lesson mm -hmm. and, and last for sure. Although in, in the early days, you know, analytics was going to solve all your world's problems, make your children love you better, like it, it was going to be amazing. And, yeah. and we would have to sort of guide people through, here's how to really get value out of this kind of thing and what to expect and what the journey looks like. Brilliant. Um, well, that's fascinating. It, again, one of, those, one of those conversations that could easily go on for, uh, for hours and hours. So maybe we should uh, pick this up uh, uh, another time and maybe actually after boss because I'm really interested to see uh, what happens when uh, wetware hits the uh, challenge in that kind of discussion and we start talking to a few people that are like oh we're doing this and this and um, yeah I really think understanding how you uh, how you get a sense of what your users are, uh, are doing and their ability to use your uh, tools is a very uh, is a very powerful um, approach. So, uh, great. Is there anything that you want to leave us with as a as a parting thought that um, is upbeat and exciting and optimistic for the future? Because we don't do. Uh, well, I, look, I mean, ultimately, my my whole take on what we've been doing as a as a species is we're we're beating him. We're beating evolution through information technology. I mean, that's what we're, yeah. that, that is what we are about as a species on this planet. And for me, it's super exciting that we are into the augmenting our cognition at this point. Like it is, it is really fascinating and interesting that we've, we've moved beyond kind of the mechanical stuff, which was important. But, and we're now moving into how do we help ourselves know more? decide more effectively, learn things that, that we would not be able to learn without, uh, without these technologies supporting us. Um, and I think the product managers that I work with day to day are getting a, a ton of value by, by creating value for their customers by helping them know something, helping them not just do something and applications generally help you do something. And that is important, but helping them know something that allows them to take a better action, take a different action, change their behaviors along the way. It's just a powerful way to take an application that's interesting and make it indispensable. Uh, and that's a, a really, a very powerful message and actually ties into one of the themes of the uh, conference. So one of our speakers is a uh, fascinating guy called Azim Azar, who's just written a book called Exponential View. I don't know if you get the exponential newsletter, which uh, is, is, is pretty interesting. And he's kind of looking at human ability to evolve, which is essentially a linear thing. And then what technology has become, there's this exponential gap. And there are a huge amount of technologies that are taking advantage of that. So I just love this concept of augmenting um, uh, humans and using software and technology to 
uh, do that, which is it's something that's kind of come up over the years uh, a lot. I think those are incredibly powerful ways of uh, approaching uh, approaching products and, and, and approaching the world. Uh, so uh, where can people find you, Charles? Uh, Logianalytics.com, I think. That is, that is um, one place they can find me, absolutely. And uh, it's Caldwell, C-A-L-D-W-E-L-L, because this won't be a video, it's a podcast. Um, so uh, we won't be able to show your name on screen, but uh, people can probably track you down on uh, LinkedIn as well. But uh, absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. I'd look forward to the uh, conference and the conversations there. And uh, happy analysing, I guess. Thank you very much, Mark. It was great talking to you today and definitely looking, looking forward to, to follow-up conversations and the rest of the conference. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.